Section 16 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World's Story, Volume 13, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 16. How People Traveled in Revolutionary Times. 1775-1781. to By John Back McMaster. A journey of any length was beset with innumerable difficulties and delays. Towns and cities between which we pass in an hour were a day's journey apart. For all purposes of trade and commerce, 250 miles was a greater distance then than 2,500 miles now. A voyage across the ocean to London or Liverpool, a trip across the prairies to the Pacific coast, is at present performed with more ease and comfort and with quite as much expedition as a hundred years since a journey from boston to new york was made it was commonly by stages that both travellers and goods passed from city to city insufferably slow as such a mode of conveyance would seem to an american of this generation it had in seventeen eighty four but lately come in and was hailed as a mark of wonderful progress the first coach and four in new england began its trips in seventeen forty four the first stage between new york and philadelphia then the two most populous cities in the colonies was not set until seventeen fifty six and made the run in three days the same year that the stamp act was passed a second stage was started this was advertised as a luxurious conveyance quote unquote, being a covered jersey wagon and was promised to make the trip in three days the charge being two pence the mile the success which attended this venture moved others and in the year following it was announced that a conveyance described as the flying machine quote unquote, being a good wagon with seats on springs would perform the whole journey in the surprisingly short time of two days this increase of speed was however accompanied by an increase of fare the charge being twenty shillings for the through trip and threepence per mile for way passengers when the revolution came most of these vehicles ceased to ply between the distant cities horseback travelling was resumed and a journey of any length became a matter of grave consideration on the day of departure the friends of the traveller gathered at the inn took a solemn leave of him drank his health in bumpers of punch and wished him godspeed on his way the quaker preacher hicks setting out in seventeen seventy nine for yearly meeting remarked quote, we took a solemn leave of our families they feeling much anxiety at parting with us on account of the many dangers we were exposed to having to pass not only through the lines of the armies but the deserted and almost uninhabited country that lay between them with the return of peace the stages again took the road but many years elapsed before traffic over the highways became at all considerable while washington was serving his first term two stages and twelve horses sufficed to carry all the travellers and goods passing between new york and boston then the two greatest commercial centres of the country the conveyances were old and shackling the harness made mostly of rope the beasts were ill-fed and worn to skeletons the ordinary day journey was forty miles in summer but in winter when the roads were bad and the darkness came on early in the afternoon rarely more than twenty-five 
in the hot months the traveller was oppressed by the heat and half choked by the dust when cold weather came he could scarce keep from freezing one pair of horses usually dragged the stage some eighteen miles when fresh ones were put on and if no accident occurred the traveller was put down at the inn about ten at night cramped and weary he ate a frugal supper and betook himself to bed with a notice from the landlord that he would be called at three the next morning then whether it rained or snowed he was forced to rise and make ready by the light of a horn lantern or a farthing candle for another ride of eighteen hours after a series of mishaps and accidents such as would suffice for an emigrant train crossing the plains the stage rolled into new york at the end of the sixth day the discomforts and trials of such a trip combined with the accidents by no means uncommon the great distance from help in the solitary places through which the road ran and the terrors of ferry-boats on the rivers made a journey of any distance an event to be remembered to the end of one's days such was the crude state of the science of engineering that no bridge of any considerable length had been undertaken in the states no large rivers had yet been spanned while going from boston to philadelphia in seventeen eighty nine breck crossed the connecticut at springfield the housatonic at stratford the hudson at new york the hackensack and passaic between paul's hook now jersey city and newark the raritan at new brunswick the delaware at trenton and the nashamung at bristol on what were then known as ferry-boats the crossing of any of these streams was attended by much discomfort and danger but the wide stretch of water which flowed between paulus hook and the city of new york was especially the dread of travellers there from december till late in march great blocks of ice filled the river from either bank far out to the channel on windy days the waves were high and when the tide ran counter with the wind covered with whitecaps horse-boats had not yet come in the hardy traveller was therefore rowed across in boats such as would now be thought scarcely better than scows in one of her most touching letters to her husband mrs burr describes to him the alarm occasioned by his making the dangerous crossing how she had anxiously waited for his return hoping that the dangers of the passage would deter him how when she heard that he was really embarked she gave herself up to an agony of fear as she thought of him exposed in the little boat to the rough waters and the boisterous winds and what thankfulness she felt when her son brought word of his safe arrival at paul's hook even a trip from brooklyn to new york across a river scarce half as wide as that separating the city from new jersey was attended with risks and delays that would now be thought intolerable then and indeed till the day thirty years later when the rude steamboats of fulton made their appearance on the ferry the only means of transportation for man and beast were clumsy rowboats flat-bottomed square-ended scows with sprit sails and two-masted boats called periaguas in one of these if the day were fine if the tide were slack if the watermen were sober and if the boat did not put back several times to take in belated passengers who were seen running down the hill the crossing might be made with some degree of speed and comfort and a landing effected at the foot of the steps at the pier which much enlarged still forms part of the brooklyn slip of the fulton ferry but when the wind blew with the tide when a strong flood or an angry ebb was on 
the boatmen made little headway and counted themselves happy if at the end of an hour's hard pulling the passengers were put ashore opposite governor's island or on the marshes around wallabot bay in summer these delays which happened almost daily were merely annoying and did no more harm than to bring down some hearty curses on the boatmen and the tide but when winter came and the river began to fill with huge blocks of ice crossing the ferry was hazardous enough to deter the most daring sometimes a rowboat would get in an ice jam and be held there in the wind and cold for many hours at others a periagua would go to pieces in the crash and the passengers forced to clamber on the ice would drift up and down the harbour at the mercy of the tide it is not improbable that the solicitude of mrs burr for the safety of her husband was heightened by the recollection of such an occurrence which took place but a few months before nor were the scows in the best of weather less liable to accidents than the rowboats it was on these that horses wagons and cattle were brought over from city to city for the butchers of the fly market drew their supplies of beef and mutton from the farms that lay on the hills towards flatbush and what is now williamsburg every week small herds of steer and flocks of sheep were driven to the ferry shut up in pens and brought over the river a few at a time on the scows the calmest days the smoothest water and a slack tide were if possible chosen for such trips yet even then whoever went upon a cattle-boat took his life in his hands if a sudden gust of wind struck the sails or if one of the half-dozen bullocks became restless the scow was sure to upset no one therefore who was so fortunate as to own a handsome carriage would trust it on the boats if the wind and sea were high or much ice in the river but would wait two or three days for a gentle breeze and smooth water but it was not solely by coaches and ferry-boats that our ancestors travelled from place to place packet sloops plied between important points along the coast and such of the inland cities as stood upon the banks of navigable rivers the trip from new york to philadelphia was thus often made by packet to south amboy thence by coach to burlington in new jersey where a packet was once more taken to the quaker city a similar line of vessels ran between new york and providence where coaches were in waiting to convey travellers to boston this mode of conveyance was thought to be far more comfortable than by stage-wagon but it was at the same time far more uncertain nobody knew precisely when the sloops would set sail nor when once started how soon they would reach their haven the wind being favourable and the waters of the sound quite smooth the run to providence was often made in three days but it was not seldom that nine days or two weeks were spent in the trip on the hudson were many such sloops bringing down again timber and skins from albany to be exchanged for broadcloth half-thicks and tummies at new york they ceased to run however when the ice began to form in the river trade was suspended and the few travellers who went from one city to the other made the journey on horseback or in the coach in summer when the winds were light two weeks were sometimes spent in sailing the one hundred and fifty miles the difficulties indeed which beset the english traveller john maud on his way to albany would now be rarely met with in a canoe on the rivers of the northwest burr on his way from albany to attend court changed from sloop to wagon ere his journey was ended travellers by these packets often took boat as the vessel floated slowly down the river 
rowed ashore and purchased eggs and milk at the farmhouses near the bank, and overtook their vessel with ease. The present century had long passed its first decade before any material improvement in locomotion became known. Our ancestors were not wholly unacquainted with the great motive power which has within the lifetime of a generation revolutionized every branch of human industry and enabled great ships of iron to advance in the face of wind and waves, and long trains of cars to traverse the earth at a speed exceeding the pace of the fleetest horse. Before the close of 1787, Fitch at Philadelphia and Ramsey at Shepherdstown, Virginia, had both moved vessels by steam. Before 1790, a steamboat company had been organized at Philadelphia, and a little craft built by Fitch had steamed up and down the Delaware to Burlington, to Bristol, to Bordentown, and Trenton. Before 1800, Samuel Morey had gone up the Connecticut River in a steamer of his own construction and design, and Elijah Ormsby, a Rhode Island mechanic, had astonished the farmers along the banks of the Seekonk River with the sight of a boat driven by paddles. Early in this century, Stevens placed upon the waters of the Hudson a boat moved by a watt engine. The same year, Oliver Evans ran a paddle-wheel vessel on the waters of the Delaware and the Schuylkill. Fulton, in 1807, made his trip to Albany in the famous Clermont, and used it as a passenger boat till the end of the year. But he met with the same opposition which in our time we have seen expended on the telegraph and the sewing machine, and which, sometime far in the future, will be encountered by inventions and discoveries of which we have not now the smallest conception. No man in his senses, it was asserted, would risk his life in such a fire-boat as the Clermont, when the river was full of good packets. Before the year 1820 came, the first boat had steamed down the Mississippi to New Orleans. The first steamboat had appeared upon the lakes, and the Atlantic had been crossed by the steamship Savannah, but such amazing innovations as these found little favour with men accustomed from boyhood to the stagecoach and the sailboat. In 1810, nine days were spent in going from Boston to Philadelphia. At the outbreak of the Second War with England, a light coach and three horses went from Baltimore to Washington in a day and a half. The mail wagon, then thought to make the journey with surprising speed, left Pennsylvania Avenue at five in the morning, and drew up at the post office in Baltimore at eleven at night. Ocean travel was scarcely known. Nothing short of the most pressing business, or an intense longing to see the wonders of the old world, could induce a gentleman of 1784 to leave his comfortable home and his pleasant fields, shut himself up in a packet, and breathe the foul air of the close and dingy cabin for the month or seven weeks spent in crossing the atlantic a passage in such a space of time would moreover have been thought a short one for it was no very uncommon occurrence when a vessel was nine ten eleven weeks or even three months on a voyage from havre or madrid to new york so formidable was this tedious sail, and the bad food and loathsome water it entailed, that fewer men went over each summer to London than now go every month to South America. In fact, an emigrant steamer brings out each passage from Queenstown more human beings than a hundred years ago crossed the ocean in both directions in the space of a twelfth month. So late as 1795, a gentleman who had been abroad was pointed out in the streets even of the large cities with the remark there goes a man who has been to europe End of section sixteen